you know, uh, of the things I've had to do in my life and gotten to do, this is probably the penultimate moment being on your podcast. to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So I don't know if I could do this without laughing, so we're just going to laugh through it. Today, I am really honored to have Pat Cashman on as a, a guest, and he, his calendar must not have been booked at all. I don't know how we got you, Pat. Just kidding. You were gracious and said yes. I don't even actually have a calendar, so... What month is oh. this, by the way? <laughs> what year is it? Okay, so Pat Cashman is my guest today. Pat, welcome. Thank you, Scott. If that for, is for, your name. For, it is my name. It's what we're calling me today. So for the one person that's listening to this episode that doesn't know about you, how would you like to be known? Uh, I would like to be known as among <laughs> the living uh, currently. Okay. Uh, by gotcha. the time this actually is uh, produced, I, I may not be in that category anymore. But for right now, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm sitting upright. I'm taking nourishment. And, okay. uh, and uh, this, uh, you know, uh, of the things I've had to do in my life and gotten to do, this is probably the penultimate moment being on your podcast. The check's in the mail. Um, how did you get to this level? How, how did... <laughs> How did your career start? I mean, I've read about you. You went to school in Portland and all these things, but mm-hmm. and then yeah. you started doing radio down in Oregon, and yeah. then you you came to Seattle. Yeah, well, it, it's not that interesting, but uh, I I, uh, I I just as a little kid, I used to do. They had a thing called record players when I was a kid, and I had one, and it's a it's a rotating thing, and you put these things called records on them. They're made out of wax or vinyl or something like that. And I would do fake radio shows only for myself, just in okay. my house. And then uh, after a while, I said, well, I got to I got to broadcast to more than me. I've got to be a little push out a little further. So I forced my brothers and I had four of them to uh, I would go set up my radio down in the basement of our house next to the furnace. And if I put the uh, record player in the right place and my voice there, you could put your head down on the on the registers, the uh, the furnace registers around the house, and you could hear it. And uh, so I'd make my brothers listen to my ra- my radio show. Uh, it was low tech, but that was the beginnings. And then I got in. I just I was obsessed with radio, TV generally, but radio in particular. I loved it, and I always dreamed that someday maybe I could be in radio and have a radio show. And and so in my hometown of Bend, Oregon, there were two radio stations, KBND, K-Bend, get it? Mm-hmm. Pretty clever, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And the other one was called KGRL, K-Girl. And the K-Bend was the much more conservative, uh, your parents listened to it kind of radio station. They had this uh, syndicated fellow on named Paul Harvey. Every day. Yes. And he was very famous at the time. Nobody now would know who he was, but he was great. And uh, they would play music that your parents would like to listen to, orchestral stuff, uh, Andy Williams, Robert Goulet, uh, stuff like that. But the other station across town, KGRL, K-Girl, they played rock music. It was hip. Mm. It was cool. Kids listened to it. So after I went through high school and I went to college, I thought, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be a disc jockey. And I got a call from KBND, the clunky mm-hmm. parent station. And they said, hey, Pat, would you like to come to work for us? I go, well, uh, yeah, okay. So I, I'm on KBND for about two months, something like that. And I'm hating every minute of it because I'm playing music I don't care for. And I really don't even want to play music. I'd rather just gab. But then I get a call from this guy at KGRL across town. His name is Ben Tracy, if you can believe it. Fake radio name. He's the program director (laughs) at KGRL. And he said, hey, Pat, I've been hearing you on KBND. You sound pretty good. Would you like to come to work over at K-Girl? 
said, well, uh, yeah, I guess it'd be pretty fun. Yeah. He said, uh, let me ask you this. How much you making over there at KBND? I said, well, uh, and, and rather than make something up, I told him the truth. I said, uh, I'm getting, <laughs> getting $400 a month. He goes, huh. How, how does $425 a month sound? <laughs> and I jumped at it because money talks, as you know, Scott. And so I went to, <laughs> to work at K-Girl. Then I went to work in a, in a place called Ontario, Oregon. Uh, eventually went to Eugene, Oregon. And when I went to Eugene to be in radio, I realized I'm not getting paid enough here. So maybe I should nose around for some other freelance jobs as well. Happened to walk into a TV station in Eugene, K-E-Z-I, easy on the I, get it? Another mm -hmm. clever call letter. And uh, they said, you know, our, our our production guy just left today to take another job. So anyway, long story short, that's how I got into TV. And I didn't take the radio job in Eugene and went, uh, worked at Eugene for about three years, then to Boise, Idaho, and finally to Seattle, where I stayed for a long, long time, and never got into radio again until the early nineties, nineteen nineties, and uh, then did both kind of both kinds of broadcasting for a long time. And I did commercials. I did uh, you know uh, uh, programs. There was a show called Almost Live on King TV that I didn't have any part of until it had been on for a couple of years. And it was like a hungry animal that needed content. And they're just saying, is anybody anywhere have anything they can offer this show? Because we're running out of stuff. And so I came stumbling in and I said, well, I could try and do a few things. And so it, it, almost by accident, I got involved with that program, continued to do radio, morning radio at the same time. Then I, you know, got into keynote speaking and doing auctions and uh, with no clearer, you know, focus or direction at any moment in my life. All I knew is that I loved, loved that stuff. And, uh, and as I'm sure Scott, you've observed, uh, people, not all people, but many, if not most people who are in broadcasting or stand on stage or, you know, speak in front of other people, uh, ironically, they are very, shy, diffident people who really aren't comfortable anywhere else except being in front of other people, but otherwise uh, are just uh, so insecure. It's unbelievable. And I fall into that category. I want to, so I'm going to admit to something that I don't think I've ever admitted publicly because you said Paul Harvey and good, good that, day. yeah, I'm good. And it reminded me that as a kid growing up, my mom and dad listened to, I think it was Como in the mornings. Yeah, Como ran and, uh, Paul Harvey. And, yeah. and, Har and it would be Paul Harvey and about breakfast time, I'd hear that. And then, you know, Como would play <clears throat> K-Bend music, you know, to me. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. But as a little kid, I don't know, 18, 19, no, just very little. Um, yeah, 18, 19 is pretty little. Yeah. I, no, I'm joking. But I Where were you think, in the first, second grade then? 1890. Oh, yeah. 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 You were it, slow it, like me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I, um, well, I have jokingly said that my freshman year was the best six years of my life. <laughs> that, is, that has yeah. been on a, on a bio before for me, but I used to think that the, the music coming from the radio station was an actual live that the, the orchestra was in the studio playing. Yeah. I, I, as a little kid, I was like, how do they get all these bands in there? I don't well, you know, it used to be, that's how radio used to be uh, when yeah, our parents but, were growing up in the, in the forties and fifties. So uh, they, they yeah. never, I don't think anybody explained to people, this is recorded now. This is not anybody. So if you, well, it, it'd be reasonable to think that they, it was all. But then the other question, the other question I have though is, so when you started your radio station in your home mm -hmm. and you were, you know, broadcasting to four registers yeah. in the house. Yeah, we Did your later, parents ever we, walk? We later expanded to five, but uh, yeah. Okay, so you 20% increase. But did your parents ever walk in and wonder what was wrong with their kids who were laying on the floor listening to the radiator? 
I mean, I, I even got my grandma to do it, and uh, and then oh my she, she'd get up and she'd have these marks on her face <laughs> from lying on the register. Very indulgent. People were very encouraging, but it was just silliness. But it, it was well, who, so. Who inspired you? I mean, who of you know who were you listening? Was it Paul Harvey that got you thinking you wanted no, to be a DJ? No, the, the, again, these references are. So uh, antiquated that, uh, but I would encourage people to look up these names. But uh, one was a guy named Stan Freeberg, and and he was a, a satirist. Uh, he did cartoon voices and things like that. But he would do parodies of songs that were popular okay. at the time. And uh, t- t- uh, the name is is Stan Freeberg. Look him up, folks. F R E B E R G. He was very clever. Very influential. Uh, there were a, a number of other people. There's a radio comedians named Bob and Ray that I listened to, and they did silly, absurdist interviews and bits like that. And uh, I don't know why. I was just attracted to it, and I wanted to be like them and and do and make people laugh if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- that's my bent, and uh, it was my bent, and I. So I did I just created it in my own bedroom. I'd actually write out, uh, you know, dialogue, and I try to change voices and be all the characters in these things. And I bring my brothers into the act sometimes, but nobody knows. I mean, who knows why people go the directions they go? Why you right. went the way you went? It there are influences of people. Um, Things you see on TV, the encouragement of your own parents. My dad was a really funny guy. So that was a big influence as well. And um, next thing you know, uh, just by dint of doing it all the time and and uh, just deciding, no, nah, th- this is what I want to do with my life. I didn't even think of it as a career. Who thinks of a career when they're a kid? They just think, I'm going to try to do this all my life. We were we grew up Catholic, Roman Catholic. My mom wanted me to become a priest, and and I thought, you know what? If if I could be a priest, but I could be a funny priest, that would be cool. <laughs> I'd do that so that I would okay. get up, you know, and say, "Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming to Sunday Mass." You know, uh, has anybody heard this joke? And I do jokes instead of a sermon. <laughs> and if people would accept that in the congregation, then, you know, that would be a career I could go with. I never occurred to me that, oh, wait a minute, Pat, there's another thing. You can't be married. You can't have a girlfriend. Oh, okay. Well, that isn't a problem because I'm only eight now anyway, so what do I care? (laughs) Girls are icky. (laughs) Yeah, they're icky. Who cares? So what brought you to Seattle? I mean, other than you were in Boise. It was a Greyhound bus. No, I, I, I was just casting about trying to you know, get a better gig than the one I had before. And, uh, and I, people who may know about King Broadcasting would know that it is, especially if you have any years on you, that that was a legendary broadcasting company. I mean, it's known, Mm -hmm. known around the nation. At the time I went to King TV, I did not know anything about them. I mean, I just, it didn't mean anything to me. And I found out only after being there, hey, man, you landed in about the best local TV station in the nation. And it was in a major market at that. They were doing more local programs than anybody else in the country. And I thought, man, this is pretty sweet. And I loved it. And I was brought in to do produce commercials. But pretty soon you find yourself doing all kinds of other things, uh, producing TV shows, it was a place where you could expand your repertoire. You know, you weren't mm-hmm. like you brought into sweep floors and you were sweeping floors 20 years later. They would advance you if you showed that you had abilities and talents. And uh, so for me, it was a place I didn't want to leave. I got, I did a lot of commercials there, but, and I would get overtures from ad agencies and the like, but I never, I thought, eh, no, this is better than that because I get to do, Lots of things. If I went to work mm-hmm. for an ad agency, yeah, I could write a script and then I'd hand it off to a producer and then they'd hand it off to a director and a camera person. And they could, but at King, I could do everything. I could sh- shoot it. I could direct it. I could edit it. Got the whole deal. And so 
uh, it was a prosperous time for me uh, in, in terms of creativity, not not monetarily, but um, it, it, I just got to do all kinds of stuff. And I learned a lot from really good people, really talented people. And then along the way, uh, King, because they were a programming place, they innovated and they once said, hey, why don't we try to do a local sketch comedy show? No, no other big market in the country is doing their own local version of, uh, say, a Saturday Night Live. And so mm-hmm. that's, where, that's where Almost Live began. I wasn't working on the show at the, at the outset, but along the way, uh, I kind of got to stick my nose in the door and I started contributing pieces and appearing on camera and things I'd never really thought about doing. Uh, I had hosted a weekly horror movie show in Boise, Idaho called Peculiar Playhouse. And we would play the worst movies we could possibly get. <laughs> and then I would be the host in between a, a guy named Professor Jasper Farndark. I was a befuddled, not very bright. Uh, professor of some fashion, and and uh, we would not only do studio parts for that uh, show, but we'd also go out into the field and shoot sketches and bits out and about, and it really became uh, a, a training ground for me in doing things that eventually I got to do on Almost Live. So, uh, but it, again, it was just it was just a blast, and and uh, and the nicest thing about it is nobody was directing you per se. I got a couple of chances to go to Saturday Night Live in my career. And I just knew I don't want to do this. I like being uh, in a market, in a situation where I don't have to stand in line behind 20 other people. If I have an idea for a sketch, you get to do it. Go for it. And that that just doesn't happen, you know. So I, I was smart enough, and I'm not very smart, but I was smart enough to know that this is where I belong. This is where I'm going to get to do way more creative stuff and and not be blocked along the way and not have to fight with other people and get in arguments and all that kind of stuff and just be an amiable, fun-loving, good old boy that gets to do a lot of material. And it was fun. So it was great. Before we before – because we, I want to ask you a bunch of – well, I want to hear more about Almost Live. But before we go there, I'd like to ask you a question going back to when you were doing commercials – or King five. Does any commercial stand out to you as one that you are particularly that resonate? I mean, that you're proud of. I mean, is there, was there a commercial that you did that you're like, I'm really pleased with my work that I did for, you know, no, no, okay. <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> it, it's funny to look back at these things. Now I was proud of them. I did think they were pretty good. And now I look back at them and I cringe, but that's all part <laughs> of growing in your, right. in your craft. And I was working with the technology we had at the time. Uh, one of my favorite things that I got to do was King TV was the broadcast station for Seattle Mariners baseball back in the, 80s mm-hmm. and and now we're used to if you're at all watching baseball mariners baseball you know that every game is broadcast all 162 there there have rarely been more than 162 in seattle mariners history because you have to get into the playoffs to keep going but please i want this to be an uplifting episode let's not bring it down too much know, but it, you're, you're absolutely correct but i'm a big fan <laughs> i've always been a fan of baseball and the mariners I'm a true believer every year. Um, you know, I told somebody the other day, I think the Mariners are going to go to, to the World Series this year uh, if they know people who have tickets for them. Uh, otherwise, they're going to be watching it on TV just like the rest of us. But, oh. but God love them. You, you think about it, Scott. The, some of the greatest players in the game have been Mariners at one point. Ken yes. Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Randy Johnson, uh, you know, and a lot of Hall of Famers, Gaylord Perry even. Gaylord back. Perry. Yeah, I mean, and I got to see his 300th win, by the way. Oh, you did? Yeah, I was there. That's, that's Air, very cool. Of course, everybody probably says that. But, I mean, so they've had their players, and they've had their mm-hmm. good coaches, and they've had their moments. I mean, no, no team in Major League history has won more games in a season than the Mariners have. 116, right. and yet they couldn't 
quite get to the World Series. I don't think they got to play it. I don't think they won. A, yeah, they they would they lost in the first round, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, just, well, they, they lost to the Yankees in that weird year of 2001, where it was almost preordained that the Yankees, after yeah. the 9-11 attacks, would have to win the World Series. It was like a story that had been written that way. But I, I'm getting I'm getting off the point here. So I got to uh, King was the broadcast station, and they only broadcast 15 games a year from the Seattle Mariners. But they needed, as part of their contract, they needed to produce commercials and promotions for the Mariners, and I got tasked with that. I just started at King, and so I I, I said, could we do funny commercials? I, you know, not just like. Come out and watch the team. Big action this weekend. I said, can we just do wacky commercials? And so I had this idea that why don't we do commercials with the actual players as the actors in these commercials? I wasn't aware of anybody that had been doing that at the time. And so I would uh, I, I would do spots with these players. And, of course, most players didn't want anything to do with it. They said, I ain't going to be a no <laughs> stupid TV commercial, but there were a handful of them that said, yeah, I'll do it. So um, they were just dumb commercials. One that I was pretty happy with was there was a guy named Tom Pachorek, who, um, if you're an old time Mariners fan, you would remember him. Mm -hmm. And he came on one in one commercial and and it was, and it was a commercial for, um, what was it about? Uh, Jacket night, I think, or something like that. You would get, you'd get a free jacket if you were among the mm-hmm. first 25,000 people at the ballpark. So, but he comes on as if he's confused about what the promotion is. And he says, Hi, everybody. It's Tom Pachorek here. Uh, be sure to come out to the ballpark uh, Thursday night for Mariners Funny Nose Glasses Night. And then he puts on a pair of funny nose glasses. Yeah, be the first of 25,000 people to come out to the ballpark and you'll get a free pair of funny nose glasses. And then I'm off camera and I go, "Uh, excuse me, Tom. Uh, I'm sorry, there's been a mix up. It's not funny nose glasses night. It's jacket night. He goes, what? Yeah, it's jacket night. If you go out to the ballpark, uh, you'll get a free jacket. So you don't get funny nose glasses? No, no, you don't. (laughs) <laughs> oh, great. Now, what am I supposed to do with thousands of pairs of funny nose glasses? Oh, that's your problem, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so it was great. He did a great performance. So what happened was that people showed up at the ballpark thinking they were going to get funny nose glasses. They missed the real message of the commercial. That they're getting and, a jacket. And they were upset that they didn't get funny <laughs> nose glasses. So what happened was the following season, because of the deluge of, uh, of people who are disappointed, the Mariners decided, indeed, we will have a funny nose glasses night. And so what became as a fake promotion became a real promotion. And that was a highlight of that time. But these players were great. They, uh, they, they really got into it. They were funny commercials. And um, subsequently, years later, of course, uh, when an ad agency had the account, they said, hey, yeah, we we remember those commercials. We're going to do funny commercials too, and they have been doing them for years ever since. Uh, right. And memorably, Edgar Martinez, who talked about uh, having a light bat. If you remember that commercial, uh, he was yes. he was he was charming, and and uh, so I, I in my own small way, I maybe had a part in in introducing that idea because I thought baseball was uni- a unique sport where players, they're not wearing helmets, they're not, you know, you can see their faces. And I thought, let's develop these people as personalities because right. they're because the baseball product itself is not that great right now. So let's make people love the players, if not the playing. Right. Yeah. Let's get them to go see Tom Pachorek. They want yeah. to connect yeah. with Tom Pachorek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I... I <clears throat> those were lonely times in the 80s there in the kingdom and... Yeah, I mean, I remember they would get maybe uh, they they would always, you know, exaggerate how many people were there. But I know that they would get maybe five hundred people. It's hard to believe that they would get so few. I mean, it, you know, I had a, I kind of a, had an idea that I would show the Mariners uh, in the nineteen eighties the cutaway of the crowd, and then cut away now to the COVID crowds last year 
as being pretty much identical, identical. Uh, but for different reasons. Yeah. So let me ask you this question. We'll just stick with the Mariners for a second. So through all the years, you you said earlier you you were you were in the audience when Gaylor Perry won his 300th game. Any other? Did you attend any other memorable Mariner games? I went to an All Star game, the only All Star game that the Mariners I, ever had, and that was great. I, I, I was at that one. But the greatest there. thing I ever saw in my life, and I was there, and I it's you can see it on YouTube. Uh, Kansas City Royals were in town, and. Uh, Harold Reynolds uh, was their second baseman for the Mariners at the time. He was on second base. I think he might've been on first. I don't remember, but I think he was on second base and somebody hit a ball almost all the way to the wall uh, in left field. And Bo Jackson was playing left field for the Kansas city Royals. Mm -hmm. He he caught the ball. I don't even think he made a catch. It it landed in a bounce. So it was a hit mm-hmm. and he took the ball at the wall. He was all the way to the wall. He, that's how far away he was. Harold mm-hmm. Reynolds is running from second base. He's going to score easily. He comes rounding third and I'd never seen anything like it. Bo Jackson throws the ball all the way from the wall to home plate. That's mm-hmm. got to be a throw of over 330 feet. I don't know how he did it. And they tagged Harold out at the plate. That to me is the greatest play I ever saw in baseball. And, uh, and, and I'd also credit the catcher who was a guy named Bob Boone. He's standing, oh. he's standing at the plate with his hands down, like, well, go ahead, Harold, go ahead and slow down because there's no throw coming. And, and so he kind of duped him into slowing down a little bit. That helped, but he tagged him out at the plate. And uh, I thought, man, that is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Uh, Bo Jackson, arguably the greatest athlete ever. Uh, you know, he played football and humiliated uh, the Seahawks. Brian Bosworth. Yeah, Brian Bosworth <laughs> along the way. Uh, so that was my greatest uh, Mariners memory ever at a game, for sure. Uh, yeah. No, I, I The All-Star game was a lot of fun to attend. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah that, was, that was a lot of fun. That was uh, – and I don't know if we'll ever get another one here. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, we'll see. Anyway, almost live. So how did Wait a you... minute. They did have another all-star game. I just remembered. It was the one where Cal Ripken. That's uh, the one I went to. It was, was the Ripken one. Was the val- most valuable player. That's right. The, the one I was remembering was, gosh, it was so long ago. It might have been 1979, Oh, so that was right when they first first yeah. came into the league. Yeah, yeah. I, went to the, I went to the Pretty one much. safe game. Yeah, that's how, I, I even forgot. that's how old I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, because I forgot. Okay. Hang on. I'm going to drink yeah. a, a can of Ensure. Okay. This this episode brought to you by. All right. <laughs> so how did you, okay. So you were doing pr- pr- producing commercials and almost live was going on and you kind of yeah. worked your way in the door, if you will. Yeah. How, um, cause I used to watch that show. So you were the guy. Before. Yeah, I was the guy. I was the one, the one Nelson, uh, or yeah, whatever. Anyway, how did you, how did you get started? I mean, what, what was, you know, like you said, you, you said, because you had a chance, you presented something, you would get produced and, you know, the skit would be played and all that. But how, what was the motivation for you to do almost live? Well, I just, uh, you know, I love comedy. I was a nerd kid that uh, collected every comedy album there was. Uh, okay. People today may not know what comedy albums are because you can see so much comedy uh, on TV now on Netflix specials and uh, those kinds of things. So, but, the, but again, these were albums and there would be names like Jonathan Winters and uh, George Carlin and Robert Klein. And it, and, and it almost didn't matter. I'd go to the comedy section at record stores and I didn't even have to know the name of the person. If they were doing a comedy album, I would buy it because I wanted to, I, I just was immersed in it. I loved it so much and would be influenced by it so much. Stan Freeberg that I mentioned earlier and those kinds of things. So it was always something I wanted to do. And I always thought, gee, maybe I can write a comedy sketch. Maybe I could do something. And, you know, people, uh, we're all critics and we sit and we watch. Well, that wasn't very funny. I could do better than that. 
not of course knowing that you can or can't. But uh, so mm-hmm. I started submitting some things to this fledgling show, almost live, that was really only on the air a year or two, and it seemed like every year there would be a newspaper article and and the headline would always be the same as if it was clever is almost live almost dead because it was always on the verge of being canceled because it was getting no ratings. It was on, I think at 6 PM on Sundays back in the old days and nobody was tuning in to watch a comedy show at six o'clock on Sunday. Somehow miraculously someone pulled some strings and almost live got moved to a time slot Saturday nights at 1130 and they would push Saturday night live back half an hour so that the prologue, the intro, if you will, to Saturday night live would be this, this local shows almost live and Mm -hmm. almost instantly when we got that time slot, it found an audience. Uh, It was half, it would change from an hour to half an hour. We just spent, we had a new host. It dispensed with, um, trying to do, uh, you know, interviews with people and there was no live band anymore. And it was just sketch for the most part. Mm -hmm. And we intensely focused on local stuff, you know, leave the national news to Saturday night live and jokes about the president of the United States and all that stuff. Let's just focus on the towns and communities where we all live. Kent, Ballard, you know, Tacoma, what that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and and people just seem to love it. This is our show. You know, it almost they almost took ownership of it. They're talking mm-hmm. they're talking about my neighborhood, my my town. And it just it resonated and that's kind of really, even though the show was on for 15 years, it was about halfway through its run that it really caught fire and found its voice. And uh and then and happily that's when I got more attached to it. And, uh, and again, the thing about it, Scott, is these people were not, uh, they didn't import people from other places that had been Hollywood comedy writers. And, uh, the people who came to write and perform on the show had no such experience for the most part. Uh, it started with Ross Schaefer, who was a stand up comedian, but for the most part, it was just guys like me that maybe thought they were kind of funny, but they didn't have any. TV writing comedy experience. And so it was like going to school. You learned along the way. Uh, I still look at some of the old sketches on Almost Live and I think, oh my God, that's so excruciating to watch. We, it was too long. It wasn't, there, there weren't enough jokes in it. But when you move up, you know, into the 1990s, you think some of this stuff, and I'm accepting myself, but uh, some of this stuff from other people, is as good as anything that's being written comedically for television right now. But that's because the show got the time and the opportunity for people to learn. And, uh, and you can watch its growth if you watch it through the years. And we were all just very lucky to get that chance. It was iconic and you're right. It was, it was so much fun to, uh, you know, watch you pick on Kent yeah, I mean, can't I, I grew up in Tacoma, so it was fun to yeah. see not pick on, you know, when you picked on Tacoma, it's too close to home. But no, it was fun to watch Kent or or the, I remember something about I think it was the Ballard Driving School. That was one and of the you had to have your that was you had that, to have you seatbelt out the door and all this, you know. Yeah, that was that was one of the there uh, in my mind. And I think most people that's one of the most memorable sketches. The idea was that. Uh, there's a different way you have to drive in Ballard from everywhere else. And again, most of these stereotypes were pure exaggerations. Like we decided Linwood is the town that where every woman has huge hair. Linwood. And right. it's probably no more true there than, than Mercer Island. But, it, but, but, you know, you just decide this is what we're going to identify as the thing about this town. And the, and it just, it caught on. But Ballard's driving academy was that in Ballard, it, Ballard has changed uh, enormously yes. since then. Enormously. But at the Absolutely. time, it was, it seemed to be largely populated by very old Scandinavian people. And so if you're going to drive in Ballard, you cannot drive faster than about seven miles an hour. And you, and you have to weave all over the road. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. you want to have your seatbelt hanging out of your car door, dragging along uh, the asphalt. And it, it it was, of course, abundantly silly, but it was also something that people really related to. Uh, and I guess that's what we all learned along the way, is that the best humor is stuff that people can say, oh, yeah, I, that happened to me. I recognize that. That's a commonality. It's a bit of an exaggeration. but there's a truth to it. And if, if there, if people can't find a truth in humor, they, it just doesn't work as well. I think one of my favorite bits that I, I got a lot of, a lot of attention for was one, uh, I did this, I was walking through Pioneer Square in Seattle one time. And I noticed that there were these retail places called, they were orient, they were selling oriental rugs. And I noticed that Without exception, every Oriental rug place seemed to be going out of business. They always had these big banners in front of the store. Last days, going out of business, must move, you know, prices slashed beyond belief. Lost our lease. Yeah, yeah lost whatever. our lease, yeah. And so I did a fake commercial based on that predicate uh, called Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium. Again, you can you can type in on I, YouTube. Almost. I watched that. I watched that bef- last week. And I brought my my son in here. My son's going to be thirty, and I said, "I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Pat Cashman on." He's like, "Who's that?" And I go, oh, "No, no, no! You got to watch this." My own kid says, and, "Who's that?" So don't blame yeah. yourself. And so I made him watch this, and he was he laughed, and he's like, "This is great." So I think, based on my other conversation with him, he's been out watching other almost live YouTube shows. You know, he so you know it it it's that one. I was going to bring that up, so I'm laughing because you brought. brought I, oh, thank you. I just that one's every bit as funny as anything I might have ever seen on Saturday Night Live. Well, if not, well, let's be fair. It's more funny than most everything I saw on Saturday Night Live for a long time. That's a great piece. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, it. But it, I, I always bring I bring that one up as an example of something that was that's relatable because it, it it's also true. They always all, they always do seem yeah. to be going out of business. And so I just, I just took that and then exaggerated from there. And uh, again, a lot of this stuff, if anybody's interested enough, you can type my name in or just almost live uh, into a YouTube window. And there's a guy named uh, George Buford that has religiously recorded every almost live rerun through the years and he cuts them down and puts all these bits on YouTube. So it's a, everything pretty much that ever happened on that show is on YouTube. Thanks to him, not thanks to anybody who actually was part of the show. So also on your, so on your website, you mentions, um, you were doing work with Bill Nye, the science guy. Yep. Yeah. Bill was one of the original writers on almost live. That's where he came from. He was a, by day, he was an engineer for a company called Sunstrand, which was a division of Boeing. And mm-hmm. and so Bill's science bent comes from him being a really bright science guy uh, and an engineer. So he'd come to Almost Live and he, you know, where everybody else is talking about, hey, I got an idea for a sketch. Bill would be saying, you know, I read an interesting article in uh, Science Magazine yesterday and so the story is that one time, uh, almost live in its early days, would bring in these B, B-level actors and uh, secondhand comics and stuff. Well, they had some big, big comics just starting their careers that were on almost live as well. Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen DeGeneres, Paula Poundstone, Dana Carvey. They, you know, they were in town to work at a comedy club, so they would you know, they'd come and be on almost live to promote their shows. But um, they had somebody that canceled on them at the last moment, almost live did. And so they're sitting around the writer's table and saying, oh my God, what are we going to do to fill that segment? And somebody says, hey, Bill, Bill and I, you, you, uh, you like talking about science. Do you think you could do like an experiment on television? We could make that a segment of the show? Like an eight-minute deal? Bill said, yeah, I guess so. And then spontaneously some, yeah, and we'll call you, uh, I don't know, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yeah, it rhymes. What do you think of that? Oh, okay, I'll try it. 
and so that's where Bill Nye, the science guy, was born. I think somebody immediately recognized this would be a great regular segment of the show. And mm-hmm. and so he started doing that, and that led, of course, to Bill Nye, the science guy, as a TV show on Disney. And I was tapped to be the uh, announcer for that show for its uh, – I think they did 100 episodes of it. And, uh, and then I appeared on it and, and did some writing for it as well. So that's where Bill got his start. And then rather than disappear after his kid show stint ended, he kept at it and kind of reinvented himself and became a little more adult oriented. And uh, I mean, he's about as iconic as anybody in pop culture these days. A huge, Mm -hmm. huge success story. Uh, And that is the great thing about Almost Live. That show was a great springboard for a lot of folks. Uh, Tracy Conway is a keynote speaker. Bill Stanton's a keynote speaker. Uh, John Keister, you know, you know about, of course. And, uh, and uh, a guy named Joel McHale has uh, been very successful in Hollywood and in movies. And, you know, there have been some flops like me, but for the most part, people got, got really vaulted into some wonderful opportunities that to a person they will admit it would have not happened for them if it hadn't been for the start they got on almost live. So then after almost live ran its course, fast forward a few years, you did the two Oh six. Yeah. This is another TV show. Kind of a, kind of a, and I got to do it with John Keister for a spell and with my son, Chris, uh, who was really the driving force behind the two Oh six. We later, added some other markets. It was another sketch comedy show, ran very late at night, but we were able to add Portland, Spokane, um, Medford, and Eugene. So it became more of a regional program, and we changed the name to Up Late Northwest. But again, it was much of the same, making fun fun of local neighborhoods with some new realities now. Things like uh, the politics had changed, the demographics had changed, the... uh, uh, marijuana was now legal, you know, all those kinds of things. And they all became fodder mm-hmm. for new directions uh, in, in comedy. People have always asked me, could Almost Live be resurrected again someday uh, with some obviously new people in it? And some people say, nah, nah, Seattle and the Northwest has changed too much. It's too, it's too divisive now. People are you know, they're angry, they're, the uh, local politics is all screwed up. And, but I, I think, no, those are all opportunities for comedy. They're not, they're not, uh, obstructions to comedy. So yeah, if someone ever wants to pick up the mantle and try and do it again, good luck. The 206 show was not done at King TV. It, it was on TV, King TV, but we produced it ourselves. And I think that's the way you have to go forward now. You have to, find uh, supporters and advertisers by yourself and then offer it Mm -hmm. to TV stations because they, their budgets no longer uh, are structured to support that. So I, yeah, I guess I'll go back because you you mentioned, I should have asked this before we jumped off almost live, but to put it into reverse, go back to almost live. I've read about Saturday night lives writer's room and how they, you know, it takes a long time for things to get done there and all that. But yeah. what was it like for almost live? How much time did you guys have to put together these episodes? I mean, did you really just do it within a week or? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You know, they, uh, uh, and, and we tried to keep it topical too. So what was happening that week would, would, would mm-hmm. be front and center. Some of it you could handle in the opening monologue. And, and, that, and I would do these things called cold opens. Uh, where I would deal, uh, either with voiceovers. I did a lot of voiceovers and lip sync on old film and cartoons and things to talk about local issues and, uh, right. uh, things like that. So and you can see a lot of that on YouTube as well. But, uh, yeah, we would basically do it within a week. Uh, we had the whole summer off, you know, we'd be in reruns all summer long. Mm-hmm. And you would think, Oh boy, that's a great opportunity to really you know, build up a stockpile of bits for the next season. But we really didn't get much done in the summertime. We 
I think most people would admit it mostly goofed off and stuff like that. But we, uh, <laughs> we also knew that, you know, something that might be really funny in July wasn't going to be funny in necessarily in September. So we wanted to keep it current and as topical mm-hmm. as we could. And, and that was part of it, but yeah, it was written within a week. They, uh, I did uh, local radio at various stations during that time of almost live. So I would be, waltzing into the station uh and this was on purpose uh as long uh, after the writers meeting as i could so i didn't have to take part in it because i found them excruciating and i didn't like (laughs) i didn't like pitching my material i wasn't good at it Uh, i just knew uh that i i had an idea and i knew i could make it work and after you've done something for a while, people then tend to trust you and say, well, if you think it'll work, it doesn't sound very good to us, but let's see what happens. So that was, again, I compared it to like, if you would work at Saturday night live or in Hollywood, it wouldn't work that way. And you wouldn't, nobody would give you that kind of rope, but, but I, I loved it. I loved that I got that kind of uh, license to take my sweet time and work semi independently uh, people ask me sometimes, they say, what do you like best, TV or radio? And perhaps surprisingly, it's radio. It, it was always radio because radio was live. It's spontaneous. Uh, you don't work from scripts for the most part. You invent things in the moment. It's based on the morning's news. I did mostly morning radio and talk show, mm-hmm. talk shows. I do characters and things. And once in a while, I would stumble across something that I thought this, this could work on TV too. Uh, that Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is the example. It started as a radio bit. And then I thought, okay, well, we could do this on TV too. So the wash between the two was really a great, great place uh, for me. So that was almost constantly thinking of bits and opportunities and news. What, where could I go with this? What could we say about something? There was a uh, incident in the news. Sometimes you know you have to make a comment about something, mm-hmm. but you don't know, given the exigencies of local television especially, uh, how can you keep it within the realms of taste uh, or what you perceive to be taste? And, and I'll try to be as delicate as I can here, but there was a guy that – in, it happened in Enumclaw, and there was a case where a fellow uh, was trying to have uh, relations, shall we say, with a horse. And uh, mm-hmm. and so it was a big news story at the time. And we were trying to think, what we got to do something with this story, but what can we say that just won't make people, you know, turn their TVs off in disgust? Because it's a story of bestiality, for crying out loud. So... The idea was, let's just have, in the middle of John Keister's monologue, we have two of our interns come out wearing a horse suit. They just walk in one of those clunky old, one guy's in front, the other guy's in the back. They come out dressed as a horse, and they come out, and and then, you know, Keister just looks over and goes, oh, no, we're not doing that joke. No, we're not doing it. And then they, they, leave, <laughs> they leave the stage. So you haven't really done a joke. But you've, but you've done the joke. You've addressed yeah, it. You've made the statement. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes yeah. you would do that kind of thing to say, "Yeah, we're aware of this story, uh, we, right. but we just aren't going to go where you think we're going to go." So, oh my gosh. So you 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 self deprecating humor. You know you 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 give kudos to a lot of your cast members doing keynote things on, but you're you're doing a lot of stuff too. You're you're not just sitting around you know no although you did say the other day you're sitting around eating bonbons and watching soap operas you did admit that but no you're doing other things yeah i was lying about that i'm i'm just eating the bonbons i'm not watching the soap operas no okay i would have okay uh no i i I get the chance to do (laughs) keynote speaking i i've done uh, i do charity auctions these days obviously a lot of that has been hampered by uh you know recent developments uh, mm-hmm. at least recent as we're recording this, where you, they can't just have crowds of people gathering in the traditional ways. I've done some virtual 
events and things. That's just not the same, of course, without the feedback from live audiences, but you do what you can. Uh, but it's starting to build back again. Uh, I don't know how much longer I'll keep doing it. I'm also, I do a lot of writing. Uh, I, I've written columns for several newspapers and I'm struggling to write a, a book or two. Uh, but I guess that's fundamentally, if I could say I have an occupation, it would be writer. But then okay. you write for TV, you write for radio, you you write for keynote speeches and, and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it's all part of just what what is inside of you and what drives you. And it's different for everybody else. I remember one time I we my we had a house where we had a horror we had a septic tank and it was it was a <laughs> disaster. It was backed up. None of the toilets would work. It was horrible. And we called out in desperation and a guy shows up at our house and he's and we say can you possibly figure out where the problem is? So he goes out in our yard and he's digging around. He's got shovels and we're looking out the window once in a while. He's out there for hours. And finally we get a knock at the door. We open it and here's that guy. He's his clothes are speckled in stuff. <laughs> he's, even his face, you know, oh. and he's smiling big. And he said, I fixed it. And I remember thinking in that moment, this guy is a hero. You know, he's never going to get featured. He's not, they're not going to build a statue to him. They're not going to give him an award, but he should get one. And I, I, it just made me realize we're on this planet together. There are people that have skills that we really need. Uh, you know, this entertainment doing TV and radio stuff is, it's fine, but it, We'll, we could get along on this planet without that, but we need people who can do certain things that they, they're they born to do, they're talented at it, and thank God for them, or we'd be just a big old mess on this planet right now. So I just, my admiration for that guy was over the top, and I thought, God, I'm, I, I cannot hold a candle to this guy's talent in his particular endeavor. But I'm going to offer you, though. So when that guy, he, he, I get it. And I could tell you other stories in the same topic, but we won't go there for this episode. But that thing, that guy does his job. Yeah. He does it well. He solves your problem. Yep. He's speckled. But when he goes home and he wants to relax and unwind and maybe forget about his job, having someone to entertain him on the television or on the radio is highly valuable, too. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess that's you could make that. Case. I mean, you got to look at it that way. Sure. You 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 serve a purpose to let people unwind. Yeah. Well, that, we don't take ourselves so seriously. That's a generous uh, way to put it, Scott. I think, and I think you're right. But uh, but the point is, everybody can't be doing the same thing. We need every. Oh. We're just on this giant. We're a team of humans. Not to get too precious about it, but. I mean, he's every bit as important and fundamental as, yeah. as the president of the United States. Let's face it. Sure. We got to have these folks. We got to have everybody and, and they should all be valued. And so, you know, on a show like Almost Live or my radio show where you would say, well, what you do all day long is make fun of other people. Not really. We're all having fun together, I think. And, and mm -hmm. that's, that's really what what is going on here. Uh, and it, you know, I just, I've never met somebody. I bet few people, I should say that don't like a little being jostled a little bit and having a little bit of elbow in the rib. Cause mm -hmm. guess what? You're a goofball too. Just I'm as sure. big a goofball as anybody. How did you get started? Let me ask you. So you're, you're doing auctions. Are you, are you doing the whole auctioneer thing? You know, going, you know, the, I can't do auction speak, but you know, are you actually? Yeah, yeah I'm trying. I'm, 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 I'm not the greatest practitioner in the world, uh, arguably. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not, but I, I, you know, I've, I've learned how to do the, uh, the rapid pattern and that sort of thing. The way I approach an auction though, and the way I try to sell it to people, if they're dumb enough to hire me 
is that is that it, yes, you want to raise a lot of money. Absolutely, that's the fundamental thing you're trying to do. But you want people who are there to be able to say at the end of the line, "Damn, I had a good time. I laughed a lot. I had a lot of fun. I'm coming again next mm-hmm. year, and I'm going to bring my millionaire friend with me." Uh, right. You want it to be. I think of it more as a theatrical sort of experience than than like you're going to a you know, a cattle auction or something like that. I want people to have a good time, feel included. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I run around the whole room. I don't just stand up on stage and, and engage people, sit down at their table and goof with them and that sort of stuff. And, the, the, you know, the effect of that is that, guess what? You still raise a lot of money. Maybe you arguably even raise more because people are not sitting in the back of the room falling asleep waiting. How long is this going right. to go on? When can I go home? Uh, right. So the, those things do relate to each other. And let's face it, most people uh, or many people have not been to that many auctions and they can't understand what a fast auctioneer is even talking about. So I try to keep it, uh, you know, as as conversational as I can while having, having fun at the same time. You left an open loop when you said you're writing a book put you on the spot what do you what what's the book i what do you what's it going to be it's the way i read books i have like 10 books i'm reading at the same time and i have like 10 things i'm writing at the same time okay. some are novels some are uh more more real life sort of things none none of them are close to fruition yet but it it's a good exercise and and it, it makes your mind open to uh, observational stuff i'm always writing things down that I note uh, something that's funny in a TV commercial. And I, one way I get to express a little bit of it is doing a couple of different podcasts. Uh, one I do with an old radio partner of mine called Peculiar Podcast. You might have remembered mm-hmm. earlier yeah. I referred to a thing called Peculiar Playhouse. So I kind of borrow, mm-hmm. borrowed that name. Peculiar Podcast is a lot like my old radio shows. We just talk about life. Uh, something you overheard, something that happened to you at the store, uh, you know, a weird uh, telemarketing phone call you got, all the things that everybody experiences every day. And we try to do it with fun and humor. Talk a little bit about politics. I try not to go there too much. Obviously, some things that get me worked up, like everybody gets passionate about things and you just can't contain <laughs> your you're either amusement or anger at something, but that's what that one's about. And then I do in another podcast started about uh, a year ago called almost live, still alive where I, Mm -hmm. where I have caught up with everybody uh, that had anything to do with almost live, that TV show and uh, just one-on-one interviews with them, all the cast members, the writers. uh, Now we're talking, now I'm talking to producers um, and I really want to talk to, the people that shot the camera people, because they, uh, as much as anything, were the creators of the show. It's one thing to write a script, but then how is it interpreted? How is it shot? How is it edited? Mm-hmm. That's all part of the writing process, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and it's been fun. It's been well received. And uh, I'm happy to say that the title was conceived because happily, all of those people are still with us. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, which is kind of remarkable. Uh, if you look at the list of Saturday Night Live uh, <laughs> people, there's a lot of them that, that checked out. And so they're not around anymore for various reasons. So as long as they're still on this side of the turf, uh, I'm excited to talk to them. And and it's funny to compare notes on stories that we all thought we knew. Uh, everybody's interpretation of particular moments in the show or what happened behind the scenes Sometimes it's a little different. Sometimes it's a little, mm. even a little bit chippy. You know, saying, you know what? I re- I never told him this, but I didn't like the way you know he combed his hair or what, whatever. And, and so <laughs> it, that's been fun and revealing uh, for people because uh, the show, uh, as a as an everyday production, ended uh, twenty two years ago almost. Even though it reran for another twenty years after it was over, uh, that's a long time ago. And memories are memories are hazy. Okay. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to circle back to something you said earlier, and then I'm going to then spin it. Okay. Right. So you mentioned when you were a kid, you went to record stores and you bought comedy records. Yep. 
Well, I stole a lot of them, frankly. Okay. All right. Well, that's statute of limitations. It's safe to admit that you're not going to get in trouble. And that record store is probably out of business because, yeah. well, it wasn't profitable thanks to you yeah. stealing. The Although I've read now that the discs uh, are are outselling CDs now. It's switching back yes. the other direction again, which is cool. Do you have an all-time favorite comedy record? Uh, I guess, yeah, I probably got several of them. Uh, my favorite, I think, I love Jonathan Winters so much. He just killed me. I, he, I don't <laughs> know if you ever remember the sketch he did. Um, it was called The Great White Hunter. And he had, he had these guys um, out, out in the field. They're in Africa. They're going on a safari. And, okay. and, and I, I don't remember it exactly, but one guy saying to the other, ah, I, I, well, who's gonna, who's gonna be our, our guide on this hunt? Well, we're going to have uh, Tom, who, as far as I'm concerned, Tom is the greatest white hunter of all time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting him. Uh, is he gonna show up pretty soon? Oh, yes. Here he comes now. Tom, we're over here, Tom. Oh, boy, I can't wait to meet him. And then Tom walks up, and Tom goes, Hi, guys. How's it going? Chase, it's a nice, hot, sunny day. Are we, uh, Tom, are we going after lions or elephants? Oh, heavens, no. I thought we were going to go after flamingos. Well, that was the basic bit. And... Oh and, and that's like in the 60s. I'd right. never heard anybody uh, do a, a character that, of course, now you realize he's doing some sort of uh, imitation of what we would call today a gay guy. But nobody would do something like that in the 60s. But Jonathan made it funny, but also inoffensive. And I just found it enormously funny in those days. Okay. The characters he created were real Seemed like real people, and I love that album. But to your question, my all-time favorite comedy album is a live album by Don Rickles. Uh, it's called he Hello oh. Dummy. And if you listen to it today, and you can listen to the whole album on YouTube, I couldn't believe the stuff he was getting away with. And this had to be 40, 50 years ago. Uh, you know, poking fun at race, at, at racism. Um, uh, relationships, politics. I mean, he was so out there in his insults, but he did it in a way that he got away with. And no, I just, I still find the album uh, stunning in its, uh, his skill to, uh, to pull it off in front of people at a time when everybody was kind of on tender hooks. I mean, it was just during the Vietnam war and uh, protests and, Feelings were very raw, and yet he was getting out there on stage and doing this stuff. That, to me, I think might be my favorite comedy album, which is funny because that's the kind of comedy I could not do myself. I think I'm more attracted to comedy that is not like my own because I'm thinking, I think a lot of the times, my gosh, I, I love, currently I love uh, Norm MacDonald. Uh, yeah, that was my second question. Was yeah now nowadays? And I, I listen. So I listen to Norm, and I say, I, I, "Man, he is just fearless." I'm not fearless. Uh, he is, and okay. and I like fearless comedy. I like to admire it, uh, even as I believe. I I just be because of the way I was brought up or whatever. I can't do it myself, but man, does it make me laugh and laugh hard? Okay. Well. Before I let you go, first off, again, thank you so much for making yourself available. But where can people find more about you? Listen to your podcast and all of that. I mean, don't send them to YouTube. Where can people go to find you? Uh, well, uh, if you ever go by the King County Jail, uh, I'm I'm there <laughs> on the weekends. Uh, they will let you visit. We can't visit for very long and we can't actually touch each other, but through a window, we, no, seriously. Uh, I do, uh, I do auctions from time to time. As I said, uh, I'm lucky enough to get to do keynote speaking uh, around the Northwest and sometimes even in other States, uh, <laughs> 
couple of years ago, I went to Vermont and Texas. Um, oh, wow. but, uh, okay. uh, and, uh, and I'm lucky enough to get to do podcasts like yours. But again, my podcasts are peculiarpodcast.com. It may be an acquired taste for you, but it's been going on. I thought we'd been doing it for a couple of years. And my sidekick, Lisa Foster, said, no, actually, we've been doing this for more than eight years. I couldn't believe it. Oh, wow. I could not believe it. Wow. So there's some okay. some 250 of those. Uh, and then uh, it's a combination of conversation, music, sound effects. Uh, and, you know, you might find it appealing, maybe not. And then, as I said, if you're an Almost Live fan or you just are intrigued by the show and what was what it was all about uh, – Almost live, still alive, like it's one word. Almost live, still alive. dot com, and uh, there's, I don't know, maybe some twenty episodes right now, including okay. everybody. Bill Nye is on it. Uh, Joel McHale, Nancy Guppy, Tracy Conway, John Keister, and and they're they're deep dive interviews. We spend uh, you know about as long as you and I have talked today with these folks, okay. and we get to find out what they're up to now and what they were thinking at the time, how they got to be on the show, where they came, came from, uh, uh, and so on. So I, it's, it's been fun to do, you know, I, and I hope they work. Okay. They do. I'll just leave it with that. They do. So um, thank you so much. Thanks, Pat. Scott. I, this has been a lot more fun for me than it's been for you, I'm sure. But I've you've been kind and gracious, and well, I really appreciate well, it. Well, you're uh, awesomely kind to uh, ask me to do this. And we have a mutual friend named Raymond Hayden, and he's the one who connected us together. Right. Uh, Ray, Raymond is um, – well, I, I don't really mean to call him out here, but he is a deeply troubled individual. And I think you and I – if we could do an intervention, that would be, that would be good. He's strong. So we'd probably need about 15 of us guys to do it because he'll, he'll be able to fight most of us off. But in the long run, it's going to be better for him. I'll just leave it at that. I, we'll, we'll talk after okay. we, we won't, okay. we won't tip our hand. Right. We'll, we'll plan the secret. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks Scott. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.